Hello, and welcome to the Grazer's Grapevine. I'm Cheryl Burns, and today I'll be talking with Brian Campbell, the State Grazing Specialist with the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. So you've been in this role for about a year now. What is the role of a state grazing specialist? Good question. Um, so for several years, I got to enjoy being a grazing specialist for NRCS in Maryland, where I got to spend all my time visiting farms and recommending improvements. But now as state grazing specialist in Pennsylvania, I'm responsible for mostly training and tools to help our field staff be successful when they go out and work with livestock farmers. Okay. And we met before you started this position because you were a grazing advisor with Capital RCD. But I can't remember the details of your work prior to that. And, and, and even before you were you know, working in Maryland. Um, are you now or were you a grazer before? And, and how did you come to your roles with NRCS? Uh, it's been a long, convoluted journey, but I got started <laughs> in agriculture after college, uh, unlike most okay. people, uh, worked on <laughs> livestock farms in Delaware and Lancaster County and Virginia, mainly grazing beef cattle, um, but also some sheep, pigs, and laying hens. Between all that and joining NRCS, I also earned a master's degree and was the agribusiness instructor for a community college in North Carolina. But yes, uh, plenty of grazing in there. Yeah. And what sparked your interest in that? I guess sustainable or regenerative agriculture was really okay. the spark. I, I listened to a talk by Dr. Elaine Ingham, who some, some listeners yeah. may be aware of. Um, and I got to hear her in Virginia while I was grazing. And uh, she just, I, I take everything she says with a grain of salt, but uh, she kind of, threw my world upside down and it's just like, oh, biology can do so much. And so I'm glad that that's what we're talking about today is the soil health and soil biology, because that's really what sparked all this for me. I know several other grazing specialists in the state. So thankfully you're not the sole NRCS staff member providing support to Pennsylvania grazers. You work with a really great team. Um, can you tell us about them? Sure. Um, we're really fortunate in Pennsylvania that we've got field staff who can help farmers in all aspects of starting or intensifying their grazing. Uh, and many of our field employees um, are grazing livestock on their own farms. But unlike many other states in our region, NRCS Pennsylvania prioritizes having grazing specialists throughout the state. Uh, so that's, that's pretty rare. Uh, and those people are very knowledgeable and experienced. And you're familiar with many of them. There's uh, Jerry Montgomery, in the Northwest, mm -hmm. J.B. Harold in the Southwest, Suzette Truax and Titus Martin, who many of our listeners will know in the Southeast, and Dr. Kelly Mercer in the Northeast. And Kelly's just started. Dr. Mercer's just started. Yep. Several months now, but doing a great job. Yeah, we're excited. I was excited when um, when they filled that role, and now we have a full complement of people, so mm -hmm. a lot of uh, support opportunities. But our purpose today wasn't so much to talk about that side of things. It was to talk about soil health. Sure. Well, before we do, I guess it, sure. it, is, it is almost crazy to think how well-resourced we are in Pennsylvania with, with grazing uh, knowledge and organizations. Um, it's just even trying to keep up with all the winter grazing meetings happening these past couple months. Uh, it's, it's, almost, it's almost too much trying to deal statewide. 
Um, but you've got all these great organizations that are regularly holding events like Extension, uh, Mountains mm -hmm. to Big Grazing Alliance, the Forage and Grassland Council, PASA, the County Conservation Districts. We've got Northwest and Southwest Projects Grass, um, as well as county level groups. Um, and you've already mentioned the free technical support that's available from Capital RCD, Grazing Mentors, and uh, NRCS, uh, not to mention um, the Grazing Land Coalition has mentorships with experienced grazers. And there's also through Capital RCD, NRCS, some of the county conservation districts, financial reimbursement cost share for grazing improvements. Um, so I guess all that to mention, if anyone's interested in getting started with NRCS and getting grazing support, the very first step would just be to contact the local field office. So, and and Brian, I'm glad that you mentioned some of the conferences and things, because there are still a couple conferences coming up. Um, the Western PA Grazing Conference is on March 14th, and that's something that the Grazing Lands Coalition through our mini-grant program is helping to support. There's also the Appalachian Grazing Conference and the PA Forage and Grassland Council um, meeting is coming up in a well, next week, I believe. So there's it some is, yeah. opportunities. So yeah, I hope that everyone will take advantage of them because really um, it's exciting to see that there's that much support because it wasn't mm -hmm. always there. Yeah. Shifting gears and moving into soil health. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of resources out there about soil health. People hear it. It's almost a buzzword a little bit, um, but What's nice is it's one of the key components of your work. So, Bering, could you maybe give us the overview of what is soil health? It's a really good question. What are we even talking about when we're talking <laughs> about soil health? Um, so, probably everyone's somewhat familiar with the physical properties of soil, like how sandy a soil is or how clayey a soil is. Um, and we're probably all familiar with soil chemistry to some degree where we're worried about having enough nutrients for our plants or how acidic the soil is. Um, but what has not always been understood is the soil biology. And, and soil biology just means the living organisms in the soil. Um, and it's, it's also been misunderstood that that soil biology can really overcome a lot of those soil physical and chemical properties. If we had zero biology in the soil, we'd be trying to grow plants in pale, lifeless dirt that doesn't hold onto water or nutrients well and that easily gets washed away by the rain. On the very opposite side of the spectrum, we'd have a soil that's completely packed with biology with life. We'd have a spongy, dark brown soil with consistency like cottage cheese, where rain can easily be absorbed, where nutrients, as soon as they're applied, get grabbed by soil organisms and then slowly released as the plants need them, and where plant pests are outcompeted by good guys who would be abundant. And most of our pastures are obviously somewhere in between those two uh, far ends of the spectrum. And what we're trying to do with, with any of the soil health improvements would be trying to move it towards that soil that's completely packed with life. Um, all that to say what soil health is, um, it's the result that happens when you add diverse and abundant soil life to your dirt. What creates that? Um, everything starts with plants. Um, everyone will be familiar with photosynthesis because plants are constantly 
producing foods through photosynthesis, plants are just the engine that powers the entire soil ecosystem. They feed above ground and below ground organisms with de decaying plant parts, as well as with root exudates. And those are those sugary substances that plants leak from the roots to attract and to feed beneficial organisms. From there, those organisms play their roles. So we've got earthworms that aerate and enrich the soil, mites that tear open bacteria to release nitrogen for plants. In case anyone was not aware, bacteria are the most nitrogen dense of any organism. Uh, so anything that eats the bacteria is going to release excess nitrogen and that nitrogen becomes bioavailable to plants then. We also have predatory nematodes that are out there controlling pests. Fungi that mine nutrient can mine nutrients directly from rocks in order to trade those nutrients with plants for what they need. So there's just a huge number of players, um, but it all starts with vigorous plants to feed and house everyone else. I don't think that this would that soil health would be such an important topic in agriculture and grazing if there weren't an issue. So that kind of tells me that there must be things that destroy soil health or that that cause a negative impact. What about that? Right. And the soil health is so valuable. It, it gives us so many benefits, carbon sequestration, resilience to drought, resilience to flooding. Um, so the soil health itself is valuable and it, it should increase the value of your land, the, the more productive and fertile your soil is. Um, but really there's also these side effects when we don't have good soil health. Um, so you might have low forage production, pastures that are just not producing enough grass to feed the animals or not nearly as much as they could. And so your hay bills are higher. So there's all kinds of side effects to not having good soil health. Yeah. Um, but as, as far as what destroys soil health, um, soil health happens when we've got living plants that are feeding and housing a thriving community of soil organisms. And so that health can be lost anytime we remove or damage that community or those plants. Um, that could easily happen through erosion where literally our soil ecosystem is just washing off the farm. Uh, it might happen when we don't have the soil covered with living plants and their residues. For me, what I always think of as one of the Mid-Atlantic's and, and Pennsylvania's biggest barriers to soil health across all land types is usually compaction, where those pore spaces that should hold air, water, roots, and microorganisms in the soil, those, those air pockets or those spaces, just get crushed. Yeah. That, that creates a situation where air and water can't move through the soil. Roots can't penetrate that hard ground. Water gets stuck at that compaction layer. It, it lays at that compaction layer and it suffocates the roots below that point. And disease causing organisms, which are anaerobic, because our, our plants are our plants are aerobic, they like air. So the disease causing organisms are almost all anaerobes. Um, and so when we've got that water sitting there, we're creating an environment that produces a lot of bad guys and the good guys, the beneficial aerobic biology is starved of oxygen and food. Okay, so Brian, you know, you're talking about coverage, erosion, erosion, we've all seen erosion that happens. But I know when I think of a pasture, even a pasture that needs some work, it's, it's, 
got a lot of forage on it. You know, it's covered. So how does that happen, you know, in a pasture? Um, and also, you know, I guess the compaction issue is, a, is another thing that I have questions about. Obviously, cattle aren't as heavy as big equipment. How, how are these things coming about in pasture land? Sure. Um, so I would say if you're going out to the typical Pennsylvania pasture in most months outside of spring, and you look straight down, so towards <laughs> the end of the grazing season, it's October, November. Um, you look straight down into the pasture. You look straight down into uh, the sward, the, the grass. You're going to see a lot of bare spaces in between grass clumps usually. Um, if you are not seeing a lot of bare spaces in between grass clumps, you probably have plants that can deal with all that compaction and grow and fill those spaces like common white clover, like Kentucky bluegrass. Um, and those plants are also indicators of poor soil health um, yeah. because they survive in that top inch of topsoil. They can survive that compaction. They put roots down and we call those sod forming grasses. They're gonna survive, which is that top inch of topsoil. They can make it, they can make a living. They won't be as productive, as productive as they could be, uh, but we're not, they've got much lower production than a healthy, vigorous pasture where we have roots. Uh, tall fescue roots can can grow like six, eight feet into the soil. I've seen it. Um, so if we're talking about our normal PA pasture with Kentucky bluegrass, and they've got roots down two to three inches. You just think about the absence of soil biology, soil health at the depths we're talking. And these plants are trying to make a living in that top one to two inches that they can survive above that compacted layer. Yeah, so really we could be looking out and thinking what we have is a nice healthy pasture and or at least decent, you know, it's it's functioning in May in early June and um, and then having to deal with issues storing, especially like last year, how dry it was. Um, I can imagine a plant that only has, you know, roots in the top three inches definitely didn't fare as well as, you know, the, the fescues that go down deeper. So, yeah. But that's, you know, those indicator species um, that, you know, you were talking about. That's that's really something to, to look for. Uh, it is really fascinating what the plants can tell us. Uh, if we've got pigweed, we might have a lot of nitrogen that's been deposited in that one spot, or it's just... I guess that's something to mention. Weeds are generally not only an alarm bell, but they're also an ambulance. Weeds show up to keep the soil covered, yeah, to, to kind of undo the damage that we've caused. And so something like pigweed can make a living in that compacted soil. And if we left it alone, that pigweed eventually loosened that soil enough so that it could be healthy again. Um, but we don't, we don't often think of weeds in that way as, as alarm bells or ambulances. Now let's talk about some of the principles of soil health management, if you will. Um, sure. Uh, so USDA usually promotes four soil health principles. So I'll just state those. <laughs> uh, those are to maximize biodiversity, to maximize soil cover, to maximize living roots, and to minimize soil disturbance. And I know you were asking earlier, 
Well, pasture is kind of already doing all those things. And I, I would completely agree. In a perennial pasture, we are, we are uh, well beyond what the average crop field is able to offer the soil. So in an average pasture, we've got maybe two or three primary species. So we've got some biodiversity. Uh, generally, we do have much more soil cover than in a crop field. Um, although, of course, I would I would like to see more where we've got, again, at least four inches of residue ac across the field when we're taking animals off. So okay. lots of soil cover is important. Um, and that relates to maximizing living roots because what we do above ground to that grass is going to be mirrored below ground to those those roots. If we're uh, taking off all of our leaf area, uh, those roots are going to slough off because that leaf area cannot support them. And it, it needs the energy from the roots to pump up and grow new leaf area. Uh, and then finally, min minimizing soil disturbance. We're generally not tilling our pastures, at least not every year. Right. Um, so there's not a lot of soil disturbance, but uh, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about what that looks like on pasture, unless you'd like me to jump into that now. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I guess I, I just start by saying this This is all farm specific and NRCS staff can provide free technical assistance about how this could look on your farm. But typically we're, we're talking about keeping animals off a very wet pasture. Uh, you can imagine hoof, yeah, hoof action does not cause too much compaction and it, it's surface level compaction, but if it's wet, that really crushes all those pore spaces. It, it gives the animal much more leverage to crush those pore spaces and cause compaction. Uh, we want to keep animals off of actively eroding areas so that they're not increasing the erosion. Like we said, when we've got erosion, our soil ecosystem is literally leaving the farm. Um, a lot of times we're talking about overseeding clovers to add biodiversity, not to mention increase our forage quality. And again, leaving at least four inches of residue when we're when we're mowing or when we're grazing uh, as, as high as we can. And the reason we're doing that is we're going to build soil health quicker. Um, we are going to recover quicker. So if we're grazing, starting grazing at 10 inches and grazing down to four inches versus down to two or three inches, we're going to recover so much quicker. It's going to grow back a lot faster. Um, and you can imagine the reason for that. We're leaving more of that leaf area, more of that solar panel that's collecting sun and creating food. So the more solar panel we leave, um, the quicker we're going to produce food and forage and food for the soil ecosystem. Uh, I guess most importantly of all, we're going to be grazing rotationally. And that means moving livestock from one paddock to the next and not coming back to that to any of the paddocks until they've re completely recovered. And generally we're talking about grazing heights then. And for a lot of our cool season perennial forages, it's coming in uh, when the field's about 10 inches and leaving at three to four inches. Um, if there's nowhere to graze the animals, confining them and feeding hay is going to be much more beneficial to your forage production and your soil health than overgrazing. And I guess I'll just end by saying rotational grazing is so important because <laughs> it distributes livestock impacts from grazing. So if we're taking too much grass, at least we're going to be moving on and letting that recover um, versus continuous grazing where we're just taking over and over and over and really hitting our benefit, our, our favorite forages hard and letting weeds that the animals don't like grow up. 
Uh, it also distributes animal hoof traffic across the fields better, and rotational grazing distributes nutrients deposited as manure and urine better. Um, I've read somewhere that uh, one urine event onto, onto the field uh, is the equivalent of 1,000 pounds of nitrogen per acre to that one spot. And you Oh, can imagine wow. it's, it's just, it's a big impact for the soil biology in that one spot. And if we're not rotational grazing, then we're having that same, we're having these big nutrient events over and over and over again. And, and in Pennsylvania, we're very familiar, especially around Lancaster County and in the Southeast and, and the dairy areas uh, that we we've got spots near the barn where the, the cows always graze. They're grazed in that one spot and the manure happens year after year in that one spot, and we just have so much phosphorus buildup. Um, so all those, all those things, keeping in mind, uh, rotational grazing is probably our number one tool for soil health. This makes me think of a, a side topic, and that's, um, you know, an, an exercise lot or having, uh, you know, a, a, an area where you can, uh, you know, keep your grazed animals when the paddocks aren't ready for them to come back in. How does that play into soil health? Sure, absolutely. Having a place to put the animals while the pasture um, is recovering is so important. I guess that that's really a point I try and make when I visit farms that are not doing much much uh, grazing management is what difference could it make if we actually treated our pasture like pasture rather than like a giant exercise lot? Um, if we were to take uh, a portion, a high and dry portion of the field and make that a sacrifice lot, a confinement area, so that the rest of our pasture could truly be pasture, could truly be out there producing forage for feed rather than just a place we put the animals. And, and what a difference that could make in our winter feed bills. Um, as NRCS, generally, we're, we're promoting and talking about uh, heavy use areas, so hardened lots with a roof over them so that the clean water that falls onto that lot uh, does does not touch the manure. It, it, it The clean water stays clean and the manure stays uh, where it's supposed to until it gets spread later. Um, but there's option, there's low, low budget options. And again, uh, taking a high dry spot in the, in the field and making that a sacrifice lot, a confinement area to let the rest of your pasture truly be pasture can make a big difference for soil health, for forage production, uh, for your budget. So when folks are implementing grazing practices, should an exercise lot be something or a sacrifice area be something that they do right away? Or um, is it okay for them to maybe start a rotation, do a, a, a trial rotation, and then, and then look at some options? Um, is there any downside to not incorporating that uh, sooner as opposed to later? I would say uh, whenever we're designing a grazing system, we want to include a place to put the animals when things aren't going right. There's going to be a drought some year and forage is not going to be produced at the rates we're expecting. Um, uh, having a place to put the animals should be a part of the initial thought or process or, or design. Uh, there's very few uh, top-notch grazers that, that get away with grazing year-round. Um, and they they don't have the numbers of animals that a lot of our other grazers do. Uh, so they might be having 
one animal unit for every three or four acres, where most of our producers we work with have one animal unit for every half or one acre that they've got. So um, I would say unless you've got a pretty big ratio of uh, acres to animals, you're going to need a place to put the animals when the acres aren't producing. Well, I guess I probably should have thought of this before that, that, you know, if someone's getting started and they work with one of the grazing specialists or grazing advisors, that's something that will be kind of taken into consideration there. Absolutely. Um, and when we're talking about rotational grazing, uh, it could be uh, splitting the pasture in half. It could be splitting the pasture up 50 ways. Uh, but one form of, of grazing that we promote for people that are not willing to work with temporary fence, they're not willing to move the animals, is just to say, okay, I've just got one big pasture. I'm not willing to split it up. But whenever uh, it doesn't have at least three or four inches, those animals are going to be confined. So not quite rotational, but at least any time that pasture needs to recover, that one big pasture, the animals need to be confined. So that's that's one option for producers that are really hard set against during rotational grazing. Yeah. Before we wrap up our conversation, is there one thing that grazers can do in the spring, this spring, to help soil health this year? I would say as it warms up, I'd encourage everyone to take a look at their soil. Uh, to go out there and compare a shovel full of dirt in the middle of your pasture to a shovel full in the fence line where livestock can't tra mm -hmm. trample and they can't overgraze. It can be really eye-opening to compare those two, uh, the difference in soil color, the difference in soil density, so how compacted it is, and a lot of times the soil from the middle of your pasture, you can see clear layers of compaction uh, where it's more crumbly and open uh, from the fence line. Uh, and also compare the amount of soil life. So do you see earthworms, roots, and, and other soil life, and how much in one spot versus the other? I guess I just encourage everyone to go out and take a look. Can you recommend any other resources for grazers that want to learn more about soil health and NRCS's grazing work? Sure. So I absolutely recommend checking out our, our website, the grazing sections. Uh, but I'd, I'd also mention someone that's been important in getting me onto this path and uh, in my career, uh, former NRCS conservationist, Ray Archuleta, who some people may be familiar with. He's always been my favorite soil health ambassador. And, and I'd say you can easily look up videos of his presentations online. And I definitely recommend, they're very compelling. We also talked about um, Dr. Ingham. I'll put up uh, the PA Soil Health website. Uh, NRCS sites. And for the folks that are joining in, if there are resources, websites, books, um, processes that you like to use, we hope you will share them. Um, share them on the PAGLC Facebook page, uh, Instagram page, email us, let us know. It's always great to, to learn what people are doing um, and to be able to share that with other people. So you know, we'd love to make this an interactive process um, and we look forward to hearing from you. Brian, I have enjoyed this. I've learned a bit, especially those visualizations. They're so helpful for me. Um, and I really appreciate that you took the time to talk with me today and to do the interview for the Grazers Grapevine. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. 
You'll be able to find more information about my conversation with Brian, including the links we discussed in this episode, in the episode notes page at paglc.org. Thank you.